Welcome to the Gym Wits Podcast. I'm Ryan George. I'm Justin Guild, aka Chef Sonic. And we are the Gym Wits. So question, as a, as a creative person, when do you find that you're more creative when you have a chip on your shoulder or you're kind of angry or upset or frustrated? Or do you find that when you're happy, you, you write better? I know, caught you off guard. Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I don't work very well when I'm angry, pissed off, even even sad, really, because then I just want to do something else. I actually find that I'm most creative when I'm happy and feeling good. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, no, no, it's interesting. Like, I'm not some tortured artist that, like, needs yeah. to be depressed in order to, like, create. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, yeah, I was wondering, because no, I'm, I definitely need a chip on my shoulder, but maybe it's not necessarily being, like, tortured or depressed but more like i need to be angry like kind of something about being for me being like mad makes me want to be productive it like makes me want to to I, act and then that kind of I'm with seems you. to light some fire of like creativity in me I, i'm i'm with you I, like i don't it's for me it's not necessarily being mad but about yeah this there's, there's some sort of um needing to either prove what you can do or uh, some sort of incentive, you know, and you want to, sh- you know, show that you can do this, even if it's yeah. showing to yourself. Yeah. And just, you, yeah, I, I know what you mean. I don't work, if I'm like really angry, I won't, but I guess, I, I, I see what you mean. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Okay, cool. All right. No, I was just, just wondering. Yeah, no, no, it's, <laughs> like a thought it's, popped it's a into point. my head the other day and I was, I was wondering that. But um, so how's your intermittent fasting going? Uh, really good. Right. I've noticed some, pretty positive results so far. I think I might have lost a little, little bit of weight and I'm, I'm feeling good. And right, I'm, the, the only time I was really hungry was last night. For the first time, I was actually hungry at night and it oh, sort really? of bothered me a little bit in the middle of the night just because I had eaten dinner at 5.30, which is a little early for me because I go to sleep late. So yeah, yeah. I, I felt it, but it wasn't terrible. You know, I'm doing well. I've been doing the 18-hour fast and... No, I'm I'm happy it's with it. I'm doing a long period of time. You think so? Uh, yeah, I mean, to I me, that's hard. Tr- I haven't struggled with it that much. It's been yeah. good. Like I, I have 14 is my kind of limit. It's like once I get to about 14, I could I could go longer if I need to, but I just I want to I want to eat something. Like my brain is like <laughs> I start fighting. You wake up a little early. Well, I wake up a good deal earlier. Yeah, you do. I mean, not, not it's it's better than it used to be where you were up at like 12, you know, or noon every day, but. What time are you typically up now? Like yeah, eight, oh, nine. nine. Something. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, there was a time where you were up at like twelve, one o'clock. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, those are times I was like working so late. Yeah, that that's just true. it was tough. But yeah, no. Um, right now I'm having uh, phone anxiety because I can't find my phone. Oh, Ryan yeah. And I just went out to park my car. I think it's in the car. It's not here. And yeah. phone right, anxiety we'll, we'll is a like real thing. Five more things to get to in this intro before we get to the uh, interview. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, what else do we have? <laughs> no, nothing. I'm just messing. I know, I know, I know. All right. I will. Yeah. Okay. So in that case, um, I won't. I won't make that anxiety last any longer. Um, we've got an interview. What do we have on tap for today? Uh, we have Dr. Tom, who has this state-of-the-art state of the art facility in Arizona, and he is incredibly knowledgeable. It's like one of those where it's like, wow, this 
there's there's really so much. I need to go back and listen to it for a second and third time to really get all of it. But it's it's pretty cool stuff, and I like that he gives some some real specifics as well. And you, you find that a lot of people do interview, they sort of don't let you in on it, but he just he just says it right out. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Dr. Tom. Hey everyone, we are here with Dr. Tom. Hey, Dr. Tom. How's it going, guys? Very well. Now, you mentioned that you just, you prefer to go with Dr. Tom because your last name is a little difficult to pronounce, but I'd still like to include it. Uh, is it let me know if I'm correct. Is it Incladon? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Oh, cool. It's cool. <laughs> actually kind of a cool name. What is that? Well, if you uh, ask my family, they'll tell you I'm related to a dinosaur. <laughs> yes. uh, but it's actually an English name. <laughs> Nice. So, uh, Tom is the founder and uh, CEO of Casenta Wellness. So, how long have you been doing that for? So, I've been uh, doing this for about thirty years. Oh wow! Uh, started in the eighty. Uh, I was one of uh, the team that was the first group to bring training in uh, women, and that evolved into strict. You have to imagine it's the 80s, and back then it was—it's nothing like today, where like you know all kinds of women work out. Back then, there's a lot of social and cultural challenges, and uh, it wasn't ladylike to swim, and women shouldn't have muscles, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we were dealing with um, at the time uh, we got funding from the United States because of the wartime situation. You know, being too slow a leak could easily be fired upon by the enemy. So we hired us to figure out how we get uh, women to be stronger than men. And at the time, you know, everybody's like, there's no way a woman will be stronger than a guy. And six months later, every woman in our study was stronger than every guy. And everybody's like, holy man, women really can get stronger. Mm-hmm. The difference is, you know, competent research guiding the training process as opposed to winging it, you know, in a gym, you get way better results. And uh, at the time, I remember everybody saying we're quacks because we actually thought we could help you know, people get stronger. And uh, when it was done, everybody said, oh, you guys are geniuses. How do you know? And it was just really, well, we weren't afraid to think and we weren't afraid to try. Cool. What was kind of exciting about that is it led to, though, um, us doing research on strength training in um, the elderly. So we've been able to put muscle on men all 100 years of age. And uh, the difference it makes at that end of the lifespan is uh, it's a guy that's in a wheelchair, it's on meds, and he can't walk himself and now six months later that same guy's on no medications and he's now throwing a football to his great-grandson so it's a whole different experience for him and then uh, same kind of thing we were told we were quacks because we're going to crush these old people and hurt them because we want them to lift weights and then later on it was like oh you guys are geniuses and then the same thing with stage four cancer and all the other conditions that we now work with uh, but we we've always used exercise as the basis for everything that we do Cool. So I guess we'll backtrack a second because we always like to, when we're with any any of our guests, get a little bit of a feel for your own kind of personal fitness journey. So for you, kind of maybe tell us a little bit like when did you start getting into health and fitness, um, and kind of how it's evolved for you personally over over the years. So going way back when I was just getting beat up as a scrawny little kid in uh, the streets in New York City, and uh, you know I saw all the guys that had really big muscles. No one messed with them. And so visually, you just know if you're bigger and stronger, everybody leaves you alone. Hmm. And so, I don't know, I probably got into school, wandered into the gym probably by the age of five to seven. 
uh, got chased out. By the time I was 12, though, I was pretty strong. Um, started competing, and by the time I was uh, you know, 13, 14, I was already winning county and state and powerlifting. And it kind of set age from there to get involved in all kinds of other stuff relative to uh, strength training, Olympic lifting, strongman contests, and all kinds of all-around lifting things. So uh, that got me, got me really passionate about strength training. And then as I encountered people, you know, friends, family members that had different diseases, and I would see how weak they were, I uh, would come to do some stuff to get a little stronger, a big difference in how they could go through their day and how they could live their lives. And kind of set the stage for me to go where I'm going now. Cool. And um, do you do you currently still do the kind of Olympic – do you still compete? No, I don't really compete anymore. It's just um, I don't have that passion um, for that like I used to. But I still uh, I still go to gym and lift some decent weights. Uh, I, don't, I don't do like a lot of the competition lifts anymore because I did that, I don't know, 30, 40 years of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I get a lot more fulfillment now and of doing new movements I've never done before. So it's kind of like learning how to walk again. So it keeps me motivated, trying new stuff. And I function, um, I do a lot of work with the brain and the nervous system in the body. And I look at how to use that to overcome my own uh, prior injuries. And uh, you know, I've damaged my body quite a bit from pushing myself pretty mm. extreme. So I don't have a meniscus, uh, a medial meniscus in either knee. So if I'm standing, like my knees can't touch, they bow out to the side. Uh, I damage a leg room in both hips and uh, both shoulders. Was told, you know, 2,000, you'll never walk again because of the damage. And um, if you see me, I definitely can walk. I don't need a wheelchair or crutches. So I kind of um, proved a lot of the myths wrong. But I'm certainly not winning any dance contests with my school <laughs> moves either. So it's uh, it's kind of like you take the wins you can take, you know? Yeah. So now in, in um, kind of your own practice, um, you talk about kind of you know, taking a – looking at fitness, looking at health and wellness through a kind of a scientific lens. And you know, really kind of that stood out to me. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about why – I guess how I guess aspects of the industry don't use that scientific lens and kind of how, how that approach um, is kind of effective to you and what it kind of means for you and your own practice. Yeah, so so um, so when you say industry, I'm going to interpret that um, like a medical industry versus like uh, like a fitness industry, like maybe in the gyms or something. Because okay. um, we have uh, I have a team of physicians here. We kind of function as like a medical center, but we have a, a pretty high level gym. Uh, any pro athlete for any sport in the world can look at our gym and go, "Wow, this is a place I want to train." And we we use it because back in um, a lot of people don't have sometimes the context of history. In the context of history, in the 30s, when a woman would have a baby, she would be put in hospital for two months, put on bed rest. Now, after two months, she gets out and she can't walk. And she's dizzy, has orthostatic intolerance, has all these health problems. Everybody goes, wow, look how stressful it is when you have a baby. And then some one day, a guy comes along and goes, wait a minute. Women never had these issues before hospitals. How are they having them now? What they realized is that they were confusing the stress of having a baby with the lack of movement. So by not moving, you go downhill fast in so many areas. And so there was that finding with just, let's say, in, in um, OBGYN, but it didn't really go anywhere. It kind of like stopped there. Now we have guys who are getting heart disease and all these cardiovascular issues. Same thing. You know, after open heart surgery, you laid up in the bed for 30 to 60 days and you get done, you barely walk and stand. Everybody goes, wow, 
look how stressful that surgery was. And nobody did find someone says, wait a minute, we're not moving these guys. And what's been happening very, very slowly, almost painfully slowly, is there's a lack of understanding in medicine between the difference of lack of movement and the actual disease process. And so what happens is once you're diagnosed, you're given this label on your forehead. It's like someone gave you a rubber stamp on your forehead. And now everybody ignores the fact that you're not moving. And because you're not moving, all these other things go downhill fast. And they go, see, it's the heart disease. See, it's the cancer. See, it's the autoimmune. And they ignore the fact that muscles that aren't used get weaker. It's that straightforward. And the body works on simple principles of use it or lose it. So when, you know, we knew this stuff a long time ago. And so we started incorporating exercise into almost everything we do. And it was just kind of funny that we're, you know, we would, you would hear people criticize that and go, wait a minute, when did exercise ever be a bad thing? Like <laughs> today, all you hear about is people need to move more, but there's still these um, uh, concepts that, you know, these mental shifts that a lot of professionals can't make. So what we do today is uh, when someone comes in, we do a very thorough evaluation. We have uh, a full-time physical therapist, looks at their body movements. Uh, my background um, right now is to look at a lot of stuff in the neurology world, but I'm more trained in um, biochemistry and endocrinology. I would say neurology is not my strength. It's just something I'm really good at. And then we have other docs to look at other areas. And then we kind of say, all right, here's everything we see and here's some ideas and how we can uh, improve this. But where we've really, you know, sort of taken it to the next level is uh, we incorporate laser systems, magnetic wow. fields, and all kinds of other technologies while people are exercising in the gym. And so if you imagine now, the gym is, um, it's a weird look because we got like hospital beds <laughs> and then you got like squat racks. We could squat a thousand pounds, you know, so it doesn't wow. quite go together. And then, well, everybody comes and goes, what is wrong with you guys? And they start <laughs> doing it and then they can't stop telling the rest of the world, you got to train here, you got to come here, you know? Where are you located? And then, we're in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, cool. I was in Scottsdale about a month and a half ago, just for a day, but I was out there. Oh, next time you come, you got to come by, get a tour, get to use some of the stuff yeah. for free. We have um, a awesome. very friendly um, – so I try to – I look at, you know, if you want, if you were to think about a team, what's the, the, the perfect team environment in terms of everyone knows their role, does their job without even talking to each other, role in sync and harmony – the best thing I can ever think of personally is when I look at, you know, when um, you have like a NASCAR race and you have these guys, these drivers on a racetrack and something happens in the car and they come off the track. They've already told the pit crew what's going on. That pit crew comes out like lightning bolt. And in seven seconds or less, everything is fixed and repaired and replaced. And this guy's back on the road driving or back on the track driving. And I thought that's how medicine and that's how exercise, you know, that's all the, the say the coaches that's how the doctors that's how everybody should work with that type of harmony team harmony and then you look at like if you go out to dinner at a very you know, five-star restaurant or a fancy hotel you're treated like royalty compare that to going into a hospital mm. where you're like you're in a convenience because you're under getting in the way or something so what i want to always do is marry the the team harmony from let's just say like you know the race car world and the hospitality from like, you know, the, the best restaurant you've ever eaten at in your life, put that together, bring that into healthcare, so that people feel treasured and welcome. And if you're like an asset, you know, every life is important, all that kind of stuff. And But make it fun. Like when you come into my building, you see people at stage four cancers laughing. You don't see anybody crying. Hmm. And the reason is we're showing them how to beat this and we're showing them how to get stronger and have fun while they do it. 
And it's just like, wait a minute, how come every the whole world ain't doing this? And it's part of it's because fear and resistance to change and everybody's worried about getting sued. So they become afraid to think, you know, that kind of stuff. So is the center mainly to treat cancer patients? No, it's, it's actually not. So it, it's kind of funny because, um, our company name was originally human performance specialists. And part of that was, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm not a marketing guy, so I don't have clever witty names. I got like very linear, straightforward thinking, you know? And so when, uh, I was working with athletes and at the time, pretty much everybody was coming to me because I saw all the records I lifting big weights and they want to have me help them get stronger. So it just seemed like a simple name that would make sense to the people I was working with. But then I started getting a lot of athletes with health issues, like really serious health issues. Mm. A lot of times because athletes are so fit looking, you know, they have abs and muscles and all that stuff. No one imagines where they might actually be sick because they look so good on the outside. There can't possibly be anything wrong on the inside, you know. And so I started working with these guys with cancer and, and musculoskeletal wow. issues and things like that. But when you have a when you have a famous athlete that you're helping, they usually don't come and say, hey, I got cancer and now I beat it. They usually, you know, they just say, oh, I'm going here because they don't want to be cut from the team. and They don't want to have mm-hmm. financial ramifications of the world knowing there's something wrong with them. Maybe later on they may talk about it, but at least back then it was a different climate than it is today where mm-hmm. people are a little more open about things. And so it kind of gave though the visual bias effect of like, well, we only treat athletes, no one else. And even though it's kind of like, you know, if you're a, if you're an athlete with a big name, when people hear about you, it, it gets a lot of attention. But if let's just say you're an average person in a small town and no one knows who you are, will you come in and get better? No one knows who you are. So no, there's no like commotion or big production over that in terms of the media is looking to find out what you're doing type of thing. So even though we were technically helping anyone that, you know, needed help, it caved, it created this in, you know, perspective that we only helped the athletes. And then at a certain point, a number of our clients said, you're the only guys that figured out the root cause of our health issues. And and part of that is um, we're the only place in the world that can measure every single gene in the human body and what's called the germline genetics, every single microorganism in blood, urine, stool, or any part of the body, meaning every organism ever discovered by mankind throughout history, we can measure them all. And on top of it, all the vitamins, minerals, cytokines, interleukins, hormones, all this other stuff. And then we have that all, um, I'm working on creating a platform where I can connect all the data from all these labs. And instead of using statistics, we would start using predictive analytics, where we could say, based on what we're seeing now, here's the direction you're going to go, and here's how you could prevent that or change it. And so then as that started unfolding, um, we just started getting more and more patients with very serious cancers that were told nothing could be done. You'll never, you know, you're not going to make it in a month or a year, whatever timeline you were given. And our patients are out dancing and looking great. And everybody's like, you're sure you got cancer? You don't look like you got cancer. And so we kind of then started getting this reputation of only treating cancer. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, whoever gets attention, that's kind of how you get, you know, that's the appearance you give. And uh, today, I would say we're um, capable of doing anything other than major surgery. Um, We don't do dental work and things like that. Uh, but we do, you know, kinds of physical therapy and uh, musculoskeletal pain management. We've been doing stuff with stem cells and exosomes and all kinds of other injectable um, agents for joints for a long time now. So we have quite a bit of data on, you know, what works to do what. 
so, so when the um, sorry to cut you off, Ryan. Just uh, so when we're able to replace our bodies with mechanical bodies and sort of put our brains in, um, you know, in a in sort of a machine, is it going to put you guys out of business? <laughs> no, not at all, because we'll be ahead of that still. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the the interesting thing right now is, you know, the idea of artificial limbs. I mean, that's been done for years, prosthetics and all that. But you run into scenarios where, like. If you think about it, what's the driving force behind making a drug or medical device? It's revenue. Yeah. It's never optimal biology. And sure. because our approach is optimal biology, we're always ahead of the curve, right? Because I'm not, I don't really care if you buy more of widget A. What I care is I get you the right widget. So if it was widget C, I still have that one too, right? So now I can get you the right tool or the right treatment or the right supplement or whatever the case may be said you get really good results and so uh, we're very embracing of newer methods and technologies because we know how to integrate them and scale very rapidly so so what so you mentioned kind of treating patients with cancer can you tell us like what's kind of novel or what's kind of unique about or different about your approach to how other uh, other people do handle it and and um kind of why or can it, maybe you can give us a couple of examples of, of of some success stories um in dealing with that yeah, absolutely. So first, what makes us apart is just our expertise is just uh, we're light years ahead of everybody. Um, I mean, stuff, we're, we're 30 years ahead in some areas where someone's like, hey, uh, if you do some yoga, that'll help your cancer. That's ridiculous. Doesn't work. People do yoga and still die of cancer. And how do we know? Because we test them. They had stage four cancer before the yoga and after yoga, they still died. So you can't use like a single dimension treatment for a multifactorial disease. It's too linear thinking and it doesn't produce results. So examples of how we're unique is like this. So we have one of the rarest cancers in history is a genetic fusion of two genes. And it's a, it's called a CICDUX4 gene fusion. It's a form of Ewing-like sarcoma. So this, pure, um, this young lady goes to cancer treatment centers around the country and they treat with radiation, they treat with chemotherapy. Not a single doctor involved in her care, and this was in Canada and the United States, took the time to actually study the disease because if they did, they would have read the research from France that says chemotherapy and radiation just do nothing for this disease. So even though that was with knowledge and it was – anyone could find that for free. I mean you need a computer and an internet connection or something, but it's there. No one took the time to do it. They just did the standard of care approach. So – Poor girl gets radiation in the brain, radiation in the neck, and chemotherapy. And you know, here it is a year later, cancer is worse than ever. Comes here, and we see just amazing results. And the first thing was, I read the research to say, wait a minute, radiation and chemo aren't a good fit here because there's already research showing that these types of cancers are resistant to those therapies. So then we went in a different direction, and it worked out that that direction worked significantly better. Um, unfortunately, in that particular case, a young lady fell in love with a boy, stopped doing therapies because she didn't want to admit to the boy she had cancer. And, of course, if you don't do treatments, you don't do well. You die after that. And so it kind of was like home run into a strikeout. There was nothing really in between. Um, other examples, we have a woman that's in her 70s. It's actually on the cover of our homepage and our website. And that particular woman, when she came here, had cancer that metastasized around her body. 
had uh, spread everywhere, and a number of senators said nothing could be done. She happened to have two other friends that also had similar cancers. Of the three friends, she came here. One of the other friends said, let me see how you do, and waited. And the third friend went somewhere else. Um, the third friend died. Uh, the friend that waited died. And this woman today is pulling logs up mountains. And the difference is that we don't treat people like a label of a disease. We don't treat them like a number. We study them and we monitor them to make sure, one, we know what we're doing to help them. And two, we make sure it works. And in a lot of ways, a lot of the stuff that we do, any personal trainer or strength coach, you know, you assess someone, you assess different fitness parameters, and you say, you know what, after everything I measured and tested, here's the weakest area. So if we focus on strengthening this area of your health, you'll see, you know, things improve faster overall. But in medicine, it's not like that. It's kind of like you have a diagnosis and everybody gets the same treatment. It doesn't matter differences in genetics or differences in gender or differences in body mass or where you're from or what you like to eat or any of that stuff. Everybody's treated like a single label. And what we figured out is how to kind of ignore the bias of medicine and actually treat people like people. So I'm actually curious of what was the approach for, for treating this lady? Uh, which use? one, the 72 year old yes, woman or yes. the uh, younger? So, um, in her case, we figured out that um, look, there's a lot of common myths that are stated about cancer. So, one, you hear things like uh, cancer cells love sugar and cancer cells hate oxygen, and that someone has cancer, the immune system's weak. That might, in, in theory, you might say those are concepts that have some evidence behind them. When you test the individual, what you actually find in one person, um, sugar does nothing for their cancer cells. The cancer cells use a different fuel source. Um, in another person, the um, cancer, it's, the, it's not that it doesn't like oxygen. It just uses up so rapidly it creates a hypoxic environment. And so the point is by testing someone, you then find out what it is that they need. And one of the things that we've uncovered here is we uncovered that it's easier to kill cancer cells through apoptosis from reactive oxygen species. You could kill cancer faster that way than to try to strengthen and build up the immune system. Mm -hmm. And But with most centers right now, because of the marketing efforts behind different immunotherapies, lots of places are focusing on immunotherapy approaches, even though it's minor impact. It's never going to be as strong of an impact as uh, reactive oxygen species inducing apoptosis. At least none of the data I've seen so far so would for show the, would catch up. So for the layman, what is that? So think of it as like um, we figure out a way how to blast cancer cells with so many meteors, mm. you know, so many bullets they can't repair all the damage from all those bullets. Hmm. And in, um, in a normal medical model, what happens is someone gets a drug, typically a chemotherapy that's administered intravenously, and that drug targets the nucleus of the cancer cells. And the rationale behind that is the DNA that controls division and replication of these cancer cells is located in nucleus. So it's kind of like we're going to blow up the brains of the cancer cell, therefore it won't know to make any more cancer cells and they'll die off. And that, that's kind of, it's logical, but just linear thinking, and it doesn't take into account the fact that the nucleus is a really small part of the cell, 
And cancer cells, just like regular healthy cells, have a lot of repair mechanisms located in the nucleus. So it's kind of like, imagine if you popped a giant balloon with a big needle. And the first time you pop it, it takes a while, but it fixes itself. But now next time you, you stick that needle in the balloon, it fixes it faster. And the next time even faster, and pretty soon, as you're sticking this balloon with a needle, when the needle comes out, the balloon's already fixed. So now that needle is no longer effective at letting air or popping a hole in this balloon. Hmm. And that's kind of the analogy I would use with how cancer cells can become resistant to some um, medications. It's not perfectly accurate, but it's simple enough for an, you know, an analogy. Hmm. And what we do is we target, we damage the mitochondria and most of the cytoplasm. So we're hitting the vast majority of the cell with our treatments that the cell, the cancer cell, does not have the ability to fight against. It's kind of like open season there. And uh, because it can't repair all the damage, the cancer cells then die off. And so it tends to be more effective. And also it's less expensive mm -hmm. and dramatically less side effects. Mm -hmm. And when people see and experience it, they become more embracing of it. Because no one wants to suffer while they're trying to get better. Everybody wants to feel good as they're getting better, you know. So I have a question uh, going back to your kind of Olympic lifting. Have you incorporated kind of your, your own experience with Olympic lifting into your practice, whether it's working with cancer patients or working with elderly clients or people dealing with any, any kind of a medical issue? Have you found a way, and if so, how um, to incorporate your Olympic background into it? So um, we don't do like cleans and snatches and um, – you know, maybe variations of polls or good mornings mm -hmm. with uh, the patients that we have right now because um, – so most of the people that come here, they tend to wait too long. Mm -hmm. And so in other words, they've tried a lot of things. Those things didn't work. And now they're at a point where they could barely stand. They may be in a wheelchair um, or if they – like some people that are older may say, I don't want a wheelchair, but they may have two people helping them walk, right? So – they're not stable enough to even hold a barbell at that point. Like just stand, standing up out of a chair could be like the equivalent of a one around back squat for them. And so a lot of the initial forms of exercise that we do really focus on getting their brain to develop better control of uh, peripheral body parts. So as an example, um, if you guys, let's say, were sitting right now and you took your shoes and socks off, or your sneakers and socks off, and you could stare at your feet, you should be able to pull, push all of your toes down and then just lift your big toe up and up and down independently of your four other toes. And then if you push the big toe down, you should be able to use, lift the four other toes up and down independently of the big toe. Most people can't do that. They move everything or nothing. And so they've lost the ability from a neuromuscular control perspective of just distinguishing between their big toe and the rest of their toes. And that's important because as kids, you can do it pretty easily. But over time, because of lack of use, people lose these abilities. And so now, because of poor control of their body, they get weaker. So part of what we you know, try to do is help them regain neuromuscular control of their entire body. In some cases, it's the, some people pick it up quick. Some people take a little more time. And then we incorporate things like magnetic fields and electrical stimulation to help them. And then once we can get them strong enough to stand and function on their own, 
We then progressed them to the ability to transfer energy or load across multiple planes. So, you know, you might think of it as like wood chops or some sort of PNF pattern on a cable pulley machine where it's like, you know, the weight's extended on the far right and they're pulling a rope handle across their body to the far left in a diagonal pattern. The reason for that is it helps the brain understand how to coordinate muscles around the hips and the shoulder girdle. So their balance improves dramatically. And so as they kind of go through these things, then we get them, say now they're more able-bodied, capable of moving. Now we get them, we have a full-time strength coach for cancer patients, you know, something most people have never heard of. Uh, Now he'll, when he gets to that level where they're with him, then he's looking at, let's say, movements that can be done safely to improve their power. And uh, when we have people come here, it's like, I came here for cancer, but you guys fixed my knees. (laughs) We have a guy Mm. right now that couldn't, he hasn't raised his arm above shoulder height in years and I told him, all right, give me one week. And uh, he says to me, week, no way. I haven't done it in over 10 years. And three days later, he could raise his arm above his head. Wow. So it's just uh, really cool you know, stuff that uh, we're able to do. Now, what about, um, what about nutrition? Do you, um, do you have different approaches? Or is it, if, sort of, once again, sort of a very individualized thing? Pretty individualized. I mean, there's general like statements like uh, we produce an ebook to help people. We have uh, um, on our website. There's all kinds of ebooks you download for free. And generally speaking, if I had to do a general lecture, and I don't know the details about the individual, I would say eat for color. So the healthiest people, not pure vegans. That's nonsense. The healthiest people eat as much food as possible of different varieties, though. And the reason is the strengths of one food offset the weaknesses of another. And so we might say just eat for color, eat for rainbow. And nature is very clever. Nature associates different nutrients with different colors. So if you had, let's say, two or three servings of, depending on your energy intake, of every color of the rainbow, then the odds of you being low on something are really low. And so by following simple strategies like that, it turns out that the likelihood of people developing many diseases goes down exponentially. Now, if someone is, uh, let's say if I was lecturing, so another example would be like, I might say blueberries, strawberries, and spinach. But if I was in a certain part of the world lecturing and there was some contamination of the soil, I might say, well, here, the, those, you know, those crops are loaded with whatever chemicals, whether it's pesticide residue, some heavy metals or something else. I would say here we want to avoid blueberries, strawberries, and spinach. And if I was testing someone individually and I see how their body reacts to those foods, I might say, look, these foods are normally healthy, but for you, because of either your genetics or your immunological reactions, you need to avoid these foods. And so that's how you kind of go from general to more specific. And I'll give you some examples. Like um, generally speaking, most people would say tea or green tea is very healthy. There's a lot of data about the antioxidants and how it benefits the body in a number of ways. But when you actually test people, some people have a mutation in their genes such that when they consume tea, it increases the likelihood they can have more information eventually in autoimmune condition. Now, how many people even know that? How many people mm, drinking wow. tea right now even know that this health food could actually create an autoimmune condition later on? Because from a linear perspective, you'd say, well, the tea is healthy. You don't think of it as a bad thing, you know? And that same evidence uh, they found now for like resveratrol, for some people with issues with their liver, they have a gene in their liver that ha- it makes it difficult to metabolize resveratrol. It's something that 
is a powerful antioxidant from grapes and in red wine that could be very um, healthy in some ways, but unless you have a mutation in your genetics, and then it could actually be a lot less than healthy for you. So you, you sound like you're really on the cutting edge of you know, all this information. I've heard a lot of, uh, of doctors and dietitians and scientists say that a lot of sort of family practitioners, sort of I guess we would quote unquote normal doctors don't know what they should know when it comes to things like nutrition and exercise. They sort of hand out as what you mentioned, the, um, you know, a generic approach. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, but I mean, you got to think about it though. Um, so the doctor of today is primarily trained to handle acute abnormalities or mm-hmm. acute conditions. Like, hey, doc, I'm feeling sick. What's wrong with me? Oh, you got this. Here, here's a pill to fix it. And the reason why that evolved is because people want instant gratification. Yeah. So doctors now, if you go backwards, well, the medical education is going to be geared towards instant gratification. It's not going to be geared towards long-term health stability. So what you see is, you know, um, in your more modern countries, your sort of Western medical approaches, the reason why they evolved is because they worked. They blew away internal medicine. That's why they came into being. The problem is that now the way that our lives are changing so rapidly, pretty soon we're going to have more new information in one day than it was the year before that. And then it's going to be the last 10 years before that and the last 20 years. And at some point, We'll have more change in one day in of, our, of our world than the last 100 years before that. So that's going to result in changes where pretty soon we won't have doctors. You'll be able to take your cell phone, scan your fingertip, look at some markers in your blood, and then there's going to be some AI system that's either shipping you or sending you what you need instantly. You won't need a doctor to look at that because there's no way the human mind could possibly sample and sort through millions of studies that rapidly and get you what you need. So what we're developing is we're developing more chronic problems because of lack of use and because of overindulgence and because of depletion. So you kind of you could categorize a lot of these things into we've depleted the environment, we've introduced chemicals in the environment, we're not moving enough. And then, you know, what you hear is when people go out to a nice fancy restaurant, what are all the top chefs doing? They're adding all kinds of fats and bad stuff in the food so it tastes good. <laughs> They're not saying, hey, I got this, you know, five-star restaurant. It's got the healthiest food in the world. It's five-star restaurant is the best tasting food in the world type of thing. And so that leads to these chronic problems that doctors are not trained for. And so, you know, you have sort of that gap. But on the um, on the other side of that coin, like the alternative medicine and complementary medicine practitioners, most of those guys don't understand science. They make up shit and they just try to use it to justify their, what they're doing, mm. but they never test or measure anything. And when they do do a test, they don't understand the methods. So they'll do a saliva test and say it's on par with a serum test when it's not even true. Or they'll make up things and say, well, the hormones in saliva have to be free because there's no proteins. And then someone with an internet connection looks on a computer on PubMed and says, wait a minute. The salivary proteins produce like amylase lipase, sex hormone binding globulin. So we know that the hormones in saliva may not be free because there's already all this protein in there. So there's all these disconnects, you know, in the different worlds. So ultimately, neither world is perfect. There's definitely opportunity for improvements, whether it's, you know, 
alternative medicine or Western medicine or anything in between. So um, I'm curious to what you think about the uh, the drug industry right now. If, we, if, I, if I was to guess, I, I would probably think that you, you, you probably feel that too many drugs are being prescribed for ailments or um, issues that could probably be fixed in different ways. What's sort of your, I, I bet you, and I'm also sure you could probably talk I give a lecture on what you think about all the you know the, the drugs coming out. But what, what's sort of your your thought on that? On all the drugs being prescribed, and you know, and you know the, the motivations behind it. Yeah. So, well, I mean, drug companies like any business, they're in business to make money. You don't have you know a board and shareholders and so forth. And, you know, members, and they go, hey, let's go lose money, right? So, if you were the CEO of a drug company. And you don't produce a profit or an increase in sales or some, you know, improvement, uh, a metric improvement of some kind. They fire you. They bring in another CEO that can do the job. So you're you're forced in order to keep your job to make sure things go in a certain direction. But I'd like to put some things in our context so that anyone listening gets a good understanding of the power and influence drug companies have. So at a hundred million dollars a year, whether you're a person or a company. You can influence the economy of any country in the world, including the United States. So that's 100 million. So just keep that number in mind because that's a big number, but it's really not that big compared to in the drug industry, just in oncology medicine or cancer drugs alone, that's about $148 billion a year revenue. So those guys at $148 billion, they're so far ahead or on top above the $100 million level they can now influence education, they can influence laws, they can lobby, influence all kinds of things. And the best way I could summarize things, if think about this. So Gatorade, which is considered a food, it's artificial chemicals and artificial coloring. And in most countries, it's approved as a food, even though nothing in it is natural. That's the power of lobbying. Now, on the other side of that, stuff that if I took an apple and I took parts of the apple and put in a pill and sell it, that's considered a supplement even though it came from Mother Earth, <laughs> it's a supplement. Mm. So the lobbying, the power of having money is you could manipulate the laws independent of the science. So science doesn't you know, have organic stuff. Organic means it contains carbon, but now you get some money behind it and now you can have a new definition of organic. And the organic definition doesn't even guarantee the foods are pesticide free because no one's testing anything. Like there's all these sort of uh, inconsistencies, you know, in the way things come into um, uh, play legally. But in terms of your original question and, you know, uh, drugs and um, companies and stuff like that, you know, right now globally, Synthroid is number one prescribed medication um, in terms of gross revenue and number of prescriptions. Uh, but in the United States, we consume about 80% of the world's drug supply, even though we have maybe four to seven percent of the world's population depending on you know who you're counting where so we overdo drugs here easily and what i've uh, proven over again and again we could take people with failed back so people that have had three or four back surgeries still have back pain been on all kinds of meds and through exercise alone get them off all their meds and make it that they don't need surgery so you know it raises the question that how are we training professionals 
that they can't see the value of exercise to reduce the healthcare expense globally. And it turns back to, well, who benefits the most? So when I was uh, an advisor to major medical centers and I said, look, if we have people exercising while we do chemotherapy, we could reduce the dose of chemo by 100 times. The response is, well, we'll lose billions of dollars, so we can't do that. So there's no interest in centers mm. that are at the multi-billion dollar level to change to an exercise-based approach because they're going to lose so much money, they can't afford to pay for all the unnecessary stuff that they're doing anyway. And so, you know, there's huge... Uh, so the business interests of healthcare are separate from the patient outcomes today, and that's in any country in the world. It's not just the United States. Wow. And I, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm, I'm curious. Now, this could start to border on conspiracy theory, but it, it almost doesn't sound too far out of the realm of possibility because we know that drug companies have done things like keep cheap HIV medicine out of Africa right to do things like that we've heard about that is it out of the realm of possibility that drug companies could have cures for cancer that they don't release just because it's not in their best financial interest oh absolutely so so here's the thing i wouldn't i don't know if i'd call it conspiracy <laughs> um i mean it certainly could be but i'll tell you this is um I, I did a documentary called The Cancer Lie. Uh, we had to pull it down because it was too confrontational. And uh, people felt there'd be threats on my life because of just the way it was just like in your face. Like, just look at the facts. So whether you believe in conspiracies or not, anyone will we'll pick cancer. But this could be extrapolated to any disease. With all the trillions of dollars done for research, how come we still don't have a good cancer test? Not a single test is perfect. As a matter of fact, the best tests anywhere in the world right now, if you do them and they say no evidence of cancer, you could still have cancer. So the test itself, if, what did we do with all that money? Well, well, all that money went to different companies trying to do more research to justify something that they can make money on. <laughs> they didn't do research from an optimal biology perspective like, hey, what's the best way to kill cancer? There's no study like that. The studies are, well, let me prove this drug works so I could sell more of it. Let me prove this new radiation device works so I could sell more procedures, get it FDA approved, so now insurance covers it and I got more money. So what I what I see happening is uh, I've been involved in all kinds of uh, committees and as advisory roles. I've never met evil people that go, look, I'm out to conquer the world. You know, I've never met anyone like that. I never met anyone that would say it's really diabolical. But I would say that there's clearly, you know, people that are far more business oriented than they are, uh, let's say, human being oriented. And so when I'm on a committee and I'm talking to, you know, a group of docs and attorneys and pharmacologists and business guys, I'm like, hey, you know, we could use metformin as a tool to enhance the results of what we're doing. And that's like $12 for three months and that can enhance outcomes of most drugs or at least extend lifespan for most cancers by two to five years, and it's cheap. Most guys say, well, then we'll lose revenue somewhere else, so we don't want to do that. And so their decision-making isn't because they're evil or it's a conspiracy. It's just pure business. It's, they don't see that, well, that decision is actually killing people somewhere, but they don't see those people die, so they're disconnected from the loss of human life. If you would have somehow put you know, those people dying right in their face, they can't ignore it. I believe they would change their position on it. So they've somehow divorced themselves from the emotional connection to human beings, and they've got more connected to numbers in a spreadsheet on a computer. 
Oh, so, so much like, great information information today. Um, Tom, can you tell us where can people find you? Like, what, uh, What's the best route? Is it social media, your website? Um, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? So uh, best way is to go to Cosenta.com, and that's just www.causenta.com. We have a form that you fill out for a free consultation. And then after they fill out the form, typically we try to reach out to person um, and then, you know, by email or by phone and say, hey, look, how we schedule something and we get it scheduled and we'll talk, you know, 30 minutes or so for free and say, all right, here's what we would recommend for the concerns you have. And it could be, you know, cancer, arthritis, it could be anything really. And then um, I just did a podcast on a guy's show that was uh, more about performance, nothing really about any type of disease. And we taught people how to assess themselves. So an example, like if you're going into the gym and your coach says you got to do 10 sets of squats, how do you know when you've done too many squats? How do you have an instant measurement of your progress and performance right now to know I better stop at set number four because after that I'm digging my grave. I'm not really helping myself. And there's areas of like um, uh, fitness and performance, like neurology and cartilage biology. Every single professional organization is ignorant of it. I wrote a very technical response um, to the NCA, ACSM, NASM, and ACE. That they're, they're just missing a lot of stuff. And mm-hmm. part of it is it's kind of like a, each organization has their sort of philosophy and approach. And they try to bring in other guys, but all the other guys think the same way. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to build something different, you don't, you don't need people to tell you what you already know. You need people that could help you see things that you can't see. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get a more complete picture of what's going on. So um, one last question before, and we'll let you go. And I've asked this before, and I've, I've never gotten a great answer. And maybe there is no great answer, but if anyone could could shine some light on the subject, I think you can, Doctor Tom. In professional sports, we see so many injuries nowadays. Now we know that training has changed. The athletes are better than ever. So. Why is this? Is it that we're diagnosing more? Is the stress that athletes are putting on their bodies is more than it used to be? Or are we just, or is it um, confirmation bias? Now that we see it, we thought this was the truth, and now we're finding reasons that it is, and maybe athletes have always been injured. What do you think about that topic? So one thing I could share with you is, you know, I've been working with athletes for a man, um, not quite 40 years, but almost 40 years. And uh, when I think back to when I was a kid, and I'm not saying I'm old, but I, let's just say I do have a lot of experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, when I was a kid, you'd run around crazy and do whatever silly games you wanted. And you weren't like uh, uh, pulled into like a peewee league or some other like organized sporting league at a very young age. And now when I see things today, what I see is, you know, by the time someone's, you know, 16, they already got like 10 years of playing football or baseball or something, soccer or something like they've already been doing it for a long time. So the likelihood of overuse patterns has dramatically increased for the individuals that have been in, you know, let's say organized sports, a limited number of organized sports um, for a long period of time. So now what it translates to, I see young athletes in their twenties with advanced arthritis already. So that tells me that they've had overuse for a long time. And, you know, in your twenties, you should heal real fast. So I shouldn't be seeing arthritis. I should be able to, arthritis should be something you see like 
in your 50s and 60s because it takes a long time to happen unless you're consistently overdoing it. And what I see now with um, with all the different training programs that athletes are done and all the different professionals they incorporate, there's a lack of context. So probably MMA is the best example, but you, know, you have a boxing coach, a wrestling coach, a judo coach, a jiu-jitsu coach, and whoever else, right? And the coaches don't talk to each other to modify the workload for the athlete. Every coach is trying to get the best out of the athlete, and they're looking at the little box of time and not looking at the whole picture. And so as a result, there's things that are lost. And so I had a linebacker not too long ago, and uh, he was getting ready for a big – he was going to sign a contract for over $50 million. And he came in, and his fingers were all twisted and gnarled. And I was like, dude, how old are you? He's like 24. I was like, there's no way your fingers should look like that at this point. So we started going through his history, and he's been injured over and over again. And look, he's got a, he's got a really good strength coach. He's got a really good naturopathic doctor. He's got a really good, um, like, sort of chiropractor. Like, these are all top-shelf professionals. So I said, you know, you got really good professionals. So let me ask you the next question. Do they talk to each other? Like, do they actually get on the phone and plan out what they're doing for you? And he goes, no, I don't think they do. And I said, mm. well, why do you think you're getting hurt when you have so many professionals and you're involved in your care? He's like, uh, you know, I think I've been unlucky. I'm like, man, that has nothing to do with it. Um, you know, it's um, what I see over and over again is people that are better prepared have less injury. Somehow luck disappears. People that don't have a good understanding of the context of everything that's going on are not always as prepared as they could be. And then they tend to get hurt more and they say, Oh, bad luck. Mm-hmm. So you can look at it however you want, but I would look at it in a way to prevent future injuries. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that is sometimes makes sense if you only thought of that one thing. But if someone says, well, I'm also doing these five other things, then you might say, Hey, I don't know about that. So an example might be, um, have a volleyball player that comes in and this guy's jumping almost a thousand times a game mm-hmm. and he's got a new coach and the new coach has him on a plyometric program. And I'm like, why would you jump more on top of jumping when his jumping ability was not a problem? Um, or another time I had an athlete come in, he was 392 pounds. He's squatting, he's uh, back squatting 800 pounds easily and his coach is trying to get his legs stronger. And I said, you're stronger than most NFL guys. I don't think strength is a weakness for you in terms of your performance. What do your coaches say? What do your agents say? And the athlete goes, I don't know. So I asked the coach, what do they say? He goes, I don't know. I go, well, people got to talk to each yeah. other. That's how you find out. Yeah. So the coaches from the team say, well, he can't move side to side to save his life. He has no lateral abilities. The agent says, yeah, teams say he can't move. So I'm like, why are we squatting this guy? He's so he's strong and everybody ready. Why don't we just teach him how to move and eliminate the strength training, at least, you know, that, that stuff, because he could put that time and get a better involvement. So one of the coaches now has him do some ladder drills and do some other things. He's a big boy. So seeing a big guy that big do ladder drills at first is kind of funny because mm-hmm. the ladders are tiny, you know. And so anyway, you know, it starts off awkward, but it took like, you know, minimal amount of time. This guy's all of a sudden looks like a gazelle. He moves incredibly well now. So the same coaches go, what drugs did you put him on? And I'm like, what do you mean? They go, he never moved that well in his life. He's got to be on something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it literally came down to no one ever helped teach this guy how to change his body direction. And he's an NFL athlete. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And what, what I learned from there is that coaching at the professional level isn't coaching in the classic sense of going to teach you how to move. Coaching at the pro level is strategy. It's all right, where do I put my guys to counter the offense or the defense of the opposing team? It's not the assumption coaches have at that level is you really know how to move and use your body. And unless you're like, you know, a franchise player bringing in big money, they're not going to put a lot of time in teaching you anything because mm-hmm. the talent pool is so deep. There's three to eight other guys behind you, and chances are one of them will know how to move his body better if you can't. And so, you know, you kind of take all these things into account, and you can see why, guys, you know, there's overuse at a young age if they've been in organized sports for too long. And you got at the at the top level, why do so many athletes, think about this, if you're a pro athlete, why do all these pro guys train outside the team? Why don't they train on a team where they have all these amazing resources? It's because they don't have the quality of coaching there. They find some guy off-site that will focus on them and help them with their weaknesses. So naturally, that's where you go. You don't go back where the guys teach you know, like a number and you're just going to do the same thing as everybody else. And so there's there's a lot of uh, disconnects in sports in that regard in terms of helping the individual figure out what they need and helping them to work on what they need. So the consequence that over time is you're going to have more injuries, especially now is um, – you know, so many more sports are popularized. You know, when I was young, as a kid, you didn't have soccer on TV unless it was like a major World Cup. Um, you didn't see much of, uh, there certainly was no uh, American Ninja Warrior or there was no CrossFit, none of that stuff when I was a kid. So there's just so many more physical, active things now. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely going to be increased awareness as well. Wow. So, Dr. Tom, you are a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for coming on the Gym Wits. This was a, a really fantastic discussion. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, you know, if you guys want to do anything again, just please let me know. Absolutely. Will do. Have a great day. You too, guys. Take care. Well, I still haven't found my phone yet. Why is that? I don't know. I just uh, I, I couldn't find Maybe it's still in the car somewhere, but I couldn't find it. So you're going to go... Yeah, well, you're gonna have to. I, I'd be under- freaking out right now. <laughs> it's, it's funny, like the the epitome of a first world problem, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's an expensive first world problem. Yeah. Well, my phone is insured. Yeah. So uh, I'm not yeah. too concerned about that. But it's a it's a it's just a real pain. Well, the question is like, when was the last time you backed it up? But I guess everything backs to the cloud anyway. Yeah, so I, I'm not too concerned about that. I, I think it'll 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 turn up somewhere. I would hope so. So would when you think you about it? I remember I was sitting here with you, with you at the studio. I was sending a text, and now it's not here anymore. So the last time you remember using it was sending a text? Yeah, yeah. All right, it's probably in your phone somewhere. In somewhere. I mean, in your phone. It's probably in my phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It would be, it would be funny if it, like, you're holding it. And you're, but you're yeah, I mean, people that happens all the yeah. time. It's like, where is this? And you're actually holding it, yeah. hiding in plain sight. So what do you think of uh, Dr. Tom? It's good. A, a lot of great information. Um, and it was stuff that we haven't really talked to many people about on on this podcast. So I think it was subjects that we haven't covered. I think often, you know, not that we interview people that all talk about the same thing, but there definitely seems to be, you know, some overlap um, when it comes to a lot of these topics. There just is when it comes to health and fitness. So I think this was a unique discussion where he and, definitely and, brought some things to the table that we haven't discussed. And how many Dr. Toms are there who runs a crazy facility in Ar- in Arizona and he's way into powerlifting and he was on the forefront of, not necessarily powerlifting, but Olympic lifting. And he was on the forefront of having 
patients, whether that were sick or had cancer, whatever, really get into strength training. Like he was sort of ahead of his time, and you know he's still doing it. And he's doing great work, and I think it's just you know it's just uh, it's a great facility, and it's great what he's doing down there. Yep. Well, cool. All right. Well. Uh, as usual, all of our stuff's at thegymwits.com. You can find our social media. Um, check out our YouTube. Uh, we should have some cool videos up there now. Uh, starting to put some new content. Uh, get some stuff to across all of the different social media platforms. And we're really, really trying to do that now. Um, so that's it. I'm Ryan George. And stay tuned to find out if Chef Sonic finds his phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see you later. I'm Brian George. I'm Justin Guild, a.k.a. Chef Sonic, reminding you that truth does not sell. And we are the Gym Wits.